Guys, my wife is uh, in D.C. tonight, and so I'm uh, all alone and uh, always more dangerous <laughs> without her here. <clears throat> Guys, um, I, I just to uh, hopefully enhance your uh, enjoyment of this section of the book of Galatians, let me remind you just of, of, of this thing. Um, you, you understand, I hope, that, that, that this is a piece of polemic. This is polemical. Do you know what that means? It means that it's an argument. It's, um, it's Paul arguing, disputing. He's trying to, um, he's t- trying to win an argument. And, and his opponent... Um, is somebody that we that we are that we call Judaizers, and you know, you, maybe I've used this term before, but I want to show you. Um, well, I mean, you've got to remember, if you understand what their emphases were, then you understand more about the polemic. You you understand more about the argument. You understand more about what Paul's trying to do. Um, Judaizers, um, uh, among other things had three key characteristics. They insisted upon circumcision. They, um, they required law. Um, and they, they really boasted in their Jewishness. Uh, they were really proud of their ethnicity. Um, l- let, me, let me just prove to you that, that I'm, I'm not making that up. I want you to go to Acts 15. Um, Acts 15, 1. Ooh, that's not a very nice five. Um, 1. And, and verse 5 in that same chapter. Let me just read you that. Um, um, Acts 15, 1 and 2. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, that's his opponent. Look at verse 5 in that same chapter. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. That's Paul's opponent. They insisted upon circumcision. They boasted in law and were very taken with their own Jewishness. This this is kind of interesting, um, at least it is to me. Um... Look at look at verse um, eight in chapter three. Um, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, "In you all the nations shall be blessed." Okay, do you see that? <clears throat> do you see the word Gentiles in verse eight? And then at the end of the verse, do you see the word nations? Do you see that word? In the Greek text, they're the exact same word, ethne, or ethnic, ethnos um, is the is the noun. <clears throat> Here's the point: Gentiles were the nations. In in Judaism, there was Judaism, and then there's everybody else. The nations, the ethnos, the ethne, 
Um, it was us and them. <clears throat> it's translated Gentiles or nations because there was really only one thing that was in our thinking, and that was our own nation of Israel and then everybody else. In fact, guys, that's true in the New Testament Greek. It's also true in the Old Testament Hebrew. There's only one word for nations and, gen- and Gentiles. It's the word goyim. Maybe you've heard of that. Um, it's, the singular is goy and the plural is goyim. Because in the mind of the Jew, it didn't matter whether you were Assyrian or Egyptian or Ammonite. It didn't matter. You were them. You were the nations. You were the Gentile. What, 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 what brand or what stripe mattered not. So <clears throat> what I'm saying simply is this is Paul's opponent in this debate. This is Paul's adversary. This is what he's trying to overturn. Now you and I, we look at this section, verses 8 and 9, and um, those of us who are steeped in this great doctrine of justification by faith alone, <clears throat> at least I hope you're steeped in it and been, uh, beyond just a, a head knowledge of it, but we who love that doctrine of justification by faith alone, we look at these two verses, 8 and 9, and we, what's the big deal about them? Let me read them. Um, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand saying in you all the nations shall be blessed so then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham we look at those two verses and they're really not that very impressive to us what's the big deal what's all the fuss about um, that that um, that Paul goes to these extremes. Well, the the fuss, guys, is that the gospel is at stake. And not only that, the church is at stake. Are we going to have two churches, uh, a Jewish one and a, and a Gentile one? Or is it going to be one church? All of that's at stake in this argument. And Paul is suggesting that anytime anyone adds... Anything to the gospel, he has subverted the whole thing. <clears throat> that, that sounds rather severe. What, what, what harm could a little baptism do to the overall impact of the gospel? Well, let me show you. Let me show you in the mind of the Apostle Paul what it does. Look at chapter 5 in the book of Galatians. <clears throat> Verse 2, indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. Guys, do you get that? Do you understand why that's true? Do you understand if you add something to the gospel that what you have said, what you have called into question, 
is the sufficiency of the work of Christ. Ah, what's the, what's the big deal about a baptism? It's not, you know, it's just a little... T- <clears throat> Paul is saying, if you add that onto um, the gospel of justification by faith alone, then you have, you have called into question the sufficiency of the work of Christ and are suggesting that that work is not finished and therefore you must finish it by whatever little item is added on. Whether that be circumcision or baptism or whatever, it is... <clears throat> to undercut the sufficiency of the work of Christ. If you, um, I say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. <clears throat> now, we go back to three, chapter 3 and we, what's the big deal about this? That's the big deal. He has got an opponent who has come into Galatia and, and, and offered an alternative message. Their message says, you must be circumcised. We saw that in 15.1. You must obey the, ten, the law of Moses. That's 15.5. <clears throat> and you got to become a Jew. If you're, if you're ultimately ever going to be saved. And so Paul is going to great extremes to try and make sure that nobody, that nobody buys that, guys. Ultimately, if you undercut the sufficiency of Christ, then you become the Savior by performing that thing that you added to his finished work. You get that? Guys, that's a big deal. If I say to you, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and, you fill in the blank, um, that's a different gospel. And that's what Paul is fighting. In this whole polemical argument of his, that's what he's fighting to make sure that that thing never gets any traction. <clears throat> now, so this little section, verses 8 and 9, um, I would say to you, packs, real, packs a real punch for a couple of reasons. First of all, the mention of Gentiles. Yikes. Um, Paul is suggesting that Gentiles are included, and the very mention of Gentiles made Jewish blood boil. The other thing that he says that is so impactful in this, this, these two verses, um, preach the gospel to Abraham beforehand. Before what? Well, before circumcision was ever even mentioned, and 430 years before this law ever came into being. 
Abraham was justified before this and before that. These are the things that Judaizers are adding to the message. And Paul is saying, well, Abraham was justified before any of this. So how, how does that message resonate when you're adding something and you're saying that the father of your, of your faith was justified before those things ever came into existence? <clears throat> Not only that, guys. Um, um, this, this mention, he quotes Genesis 2, uh, 12. In you, all the nations shall be blessed. Um, <clears throat> God is speaking to Abraham. He says to Abraham that as the father of this, this thing, in you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Gang, that was Israel's greatest failure. She was supposed to be a channel through which God poured all of his blessings so that they would come out and spread to the entire world. Instead of being a channel for his blessings, she became a repository. She became a, um, a uh, collector, a hoarder. Um, a, um, uh, she hoarded all those blessings and despised all the Gentiles and excluded everybody else but her. She was supposed to be brought into existence so that the whole world could hear the same message that Abraham did. And not only did they distort the message, but they limited the distorted message to their own nation. That was Israel's big failure. Um, in all, in, uh, in you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. What's the blessing? The blessing is this justification that has, that Abraham has, um, has received. Um, these Gentiles are going to be justified the same way that Abraham was. Um, then, um, notice in verse nine, notice the redundancy. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing. The emphasis, in fact, guys, nine times in, no, seven times in nine verses is the noun or verb believing mentioned because that's Paul's emphasis. Um, Gentiles are going to be justified the same way that Abraham was. And Abraham was reckoned to be just on the basis of faith. <clears throat> you see, guys, the, the religion that is offered by Judaism is a, um, is a sweating one. I'm not saying sweaty. I'm saying sweating. Uh, it calls you to this exertion. It calls you into this, um, this performing. And yet... The father of that nation, there is not one ounce of exertion that is ever mentioned on the part of Abraham, ever. That is, before he was justified. In fact, and, and guys, let me show you this. I've, I've, I've showed you this before, but flip over to Genesis 15. 
<clears throat> Genesis 15 is where, is where we get that great statement in verse 6, which is the, the, the grounds or the beginning of the doctrine of justification by faith. He believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. And then in verses 8 through 21, you've heard me talk about this before, you get a very strange event. You remember the event where the animals are cut in two and God passes down through the center of them? Remember that? When that takes place, what is Abraham doing? <laughs> He's sleeping. Israel is promoting this Abraham that works his way into God's favor. And in this case where the whole covenant is being consummated, Abraham is asleep. He's doing nothing. All of these commitments that are being made, all of these promises that are being made are being made by God. Abraham is asleep. He's not grinding anything out. He's not perspiring. He's not working at obedience. God is making a commitment to him. And Abraham is not asked to make any promises. And do you know why he's not asked to make any promises? Because he could never keep them if he made them. So God makes the promises. God makes the commitment while Abraham is asleep. Not one ounce of exertion, guys. And, and whereas... <laughs> I probably shouldn't do this, but <clears throat> Susie's not here. Um, <clears throat> whereas Israel promotes this sweating Abraham, Rome supports or promotes this exemplary Christ. And you say, well, what's the matter with that? I mean, um, uh, isn't Christ exemplary? Yes, ladies and gentlemen, quite exemplary. But he is not, first and foremost, an example. He doesn't give us an example that we are to follow so that we can ultimately be justified. Christ indeed is to be followed. But he is followed after his people are justified. That following comes on the other side of their having been declared righteous in the sight of God. Christ is, um, his, his, his message to us, ladies and gentlemen, is not follow my example. His message is believe on my finished work. Now, <clears throat> um, I've said to you for the last two or three weeks that this is a significant section, verses uh, 6 through 9. So here's what I want to do as I close. I mean, uh, tonight. I said to you last week that it's a significant portion of the, the, of the book of Galatians because it opens in verse 6 with the mention of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. 
So what I want to do is just, I hope very simply and um, clearly, um, try to summarize what's in these five verses in simply trying to explain what is then the gospel. Now, guys, <clears throat> um, you know one of my heroes is Martin Lloyd Jones. Do you know what they said? Martin, what they said that Martin Lloyd Jones did the best. He preached the gospel to church people. Do you know that his own wife? was converted under his preaching. They'd been married I don't know how long, but underneath her husband's preaching, she realized that all she had was, um, was kind of a formal uh, awareness of God's control. And Lloyd-Jones went to the pulpit Sunday after Sunday, assuming that the room was, was highly populated by unconverted churchmen. Now, I'm not saying that I'm making that assumption. But I, you've got to get this, ladies and gentlemen. It's only three points. First of all, what is the gospel? Here it is. Christ crucified. Guys, the gospel is a message about Christ crucified. The gospel is not Offering you instructions. Do this, do this, do this, and certainly don't forget to be baptized. The gospel is not, is, is not good advice. It's good news. The gospel is a proclamation about Christ crucified <clears throat> I want to read you don't, don't turn listen, listen to how Paul says this in, this is in 1 Corinthians 1 <clears throat> um, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block of course and to the Greeks foolishness he goes on, for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Gang, <clears throat> the gospel is not about Christ as an example, as a moral example, a la Rome. The gospel is not about Christ as a helper or as a friend. The gospel is not about Christ as a teacher. 
He is all of those things. But the gospel is a proclamation. It's placarding Christ crucified for sin. Marlon Jones' wife said that the thing that she so sensed under her husband's preaching was her sin. The gospel is about Christ. It's a message um, making much of Christ crucified. Not about your contributions, not about what you need to do, not about the, th- the ways that you need to change your life, not about the sacraments that you must undergo. It is about Christ crucified. You know, guys, um, I was in a discussion with someone recently who was telling me about how he's trying to reach his friend at work. And, and this guy was, um, uh, they were just battling about the gospel. And, um, and this guy was talking about the nuances of the, of the language and the, and the uh, intricacies of the, uh, of the message, et cetera, et cetera. May I say to you, there are no nuances. There is no complications there doesn't need to be any baggage, any additions, any accretions, nothing. The gospel is Christ crucified. Okay, <clears throat> secondly, what does the gospel offer? Well, um, again, growing out of this text that we've just looked at, Galatians 3, 6 through 9. First of all, it offers justification. Let me give you a word that might be more helpful. It offers reconciliation. The gospel offers reconciliation. Between whom? Between you and me, the sinner, and God the sinned against. The gospel is a message about Christ crucified offering me reconciliation with the God who my sin is so offended and aggrieved. It's not offering me a promise of complete mental health. We all know that's not not what it offers, don't we? We're all so mentally ill. It's just a matter of degree. What it offers us is a reconciled relationship, a relationship having been broken by my sin. It offers me reconciliation with God. And not only does this text say that it offers me justification, but in verses 2 through 5, it also says it offers me the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, did you receive the Holy Spirit by works of the law or by hearing of faith? A part of the offer of the gospel 
is the gift of the Holy Spirit. It offers me reconciliation. It offers me the indwelling Holy Spirit. And it offers me forgiveness. It did not promise to heal you of all your diseases. It did not promise you prosperity. It did not promise you that life is going to simplify. It promised you a remedy for the biggest problem that we all have. Our sin. It it offers me reconciliation with God, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and forgiveness of sin. This message about Christ crucified turns to me and says, here's what can be yours. Thirdly and finally, what then does the gospel require? Nothing. We do nothing. We are called only to believe. I I tried to make a big deal about this. Judaism's offering a sweating Abraham. And then showed you a passage where this sweating Abraham is having all these commitments made to him while he's asleep. He's not sweating. He's doing nothing. Abraham did nothing. What do we do in response to this message? Nothing. You do nothing. And ladies and gentlemen, if you say anything other than that, What you have done is erode, seriously erode, the sufficiency of Christ's work for his people. The only conceivable, accurate answer to the question, what does the gospel require, is nothing. Because if you answer any other way, you've got another gospel. You've got a gospel of self-salvation. You've got a gospel of self-contribution. You've got another gospel. Um, The one who believes in Christ um, demonstrates the reality of his belief in a holy life. Do you understand that? Do you get that? That's this, I think, clear representation of the role that works do play. They become a demonstration of the reality of the belief that I say that I have in the finished work of Christ. The proof... 
that I have this belief is that it, it fleshes itself out in a holy life. But in that holy life, there is not one ounce of contribution that that holy life makes to my having been justified. I was justified long before my holy life began to prove it that I am. What does the gospel require? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Guys, there's a whole lot of other things that I believe as a Christian. If you've ever taken my systematics class, you know that I, there's a whole lot of stuff that I believe. And you do too. But when we boil all this down to the, to the essentialities, the essentials of the gospel, here they are. It's a message about Christ and him crucified. It doesn't offer you instructions. It doesn't offer you advice. It offers you good news about what's been accomplished. It then offers you reconciliation with God, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and forgiveness of sin. And what does it ask of you to contribute? Nothing. And once I get a glimpse of the beauty of that um, provision that God has made for the undeserving, there's this desire I have to tell him just how grateful I am that he's done that. And so my life little by little begins to change. But the gospel never says, believe in Jesus and change your life and you will be saved. That's a different gospel. And I'll tell you, it's Rome's gospel. The gospel is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Paul is determined to win this argument. <laughs> and so am I. <laughs> Let's quit. Our Father, I do pray that you will make this clear to your people, uh, this listening audience who, um, who uh, gives me the privilege of trying to explain it well. And I pray that you have allowed me to do that and that people can walk out of here with a, a very simple understanding of what, of what takes place every time anyone becomes a Christian in a world that seems to be getting less and less interested in any claims that we make. We who are in this room love this truth. We love this message. We love this Savior. We are sorry that we love him so little. But by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, would you, would you enable us, would you allow us to love him more? We want the demonstration of a reality of our belief in Christ to be apparent 
to everyone who looks. Father, if, there, if you have brought folks in here tonight who, um, who are good churchmen, who are, um, who are interested in religion, would you enable them to see that at the center of all that we believe in as Christians is a crucified Savior who offers us reconciliation with God through faith in his finished work. Make that abundantly clear to the eyes of the soul. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.